Peace be with you. Is your life simply unfolding according to chance? What's the question? Chance, randomness. Carl L. Becker was a historian who said that humans must be looked at in this way. A little more than a chance deposit on the surface of the world, carelessly thrown up between two ice ages by the same forces that rust iron and ripen corn. Oh. That's kind of an understanding of the world, seeing how things develop, unfold uh, according to chance. And I wonder when I see stuff like this, and I know that this is increasingly the opinion of a lot of people uh, in the world, I, think, I, I kind of personally wonder, is this why despair is on the rise increasingly? Uh, and, and suicide is a very tricky thing, but is this partially why suicide is on the rise, or there's apathy or cynicism, whatever it happens uh, to be? But it's not the only way to look at the world. And in fact, another way to look at is one called uh, providence. But providence is not one of those words that we use a lot, but it's a very important word. And so we're going to break down a little bit so we can understand what is meant when we talk about uh, providence. Okay, so the word itself is closely connected to the word provide, which is built on two smaller Latin words, pro meaning forward or on behalf of, and uh, vida, which means uh, to see. So the idea with uh, to provide is to supply what is needed. So if you think of a, uh, a provider in a household, uh, you think he or she is going to look into the future a little bit and say, okay, uh, you know, okay, we need to go into town a couple times this week, so we need to make sure there's enough gas in the vehicle. We need to make sure there's uh, some food in the fridge and make sure everyone has the clothes that they need, all that stuff. That's what a provider does. They see forward to a certain degree to provide for the needs of the people who are in their household. And so connected to this is, of course, God as capital P provider, one who sees, capital P provider, one who sees past, present, and future to supply for the needs of his own people. And because we know that God is both good and sovereign, we know that God as capital B provider is, is, is seeing past, present, and future to supply for the needs of his people in a good way and which, which bring him glory. Okay, so this is what is, is meant by this word providence. Now, some of you who are kind of from the hardcore uh, Reformed Protestant uh, tradition will have heard of some of the things called the Westminster Larger Catechism or the Heidelberg Catechism. These help give us some clarity about uh, providence. Next slide. Uh, sorry, back one. God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures, ordering them and all their actions to his glory. So that's kind of a, kind of a theologically intense understanding of providence. Next, Heidelberg Catechism says, All things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. Now, that idea of, of this invisible hand governing and guiding all things in our lives. Now, when um, good things happen to us, it's easy to believe in providence. When good things and things are coming together and everything's coming up roses, it's, it's easier to believe in it like that. Uh, Lee Strobel tells a story in one of his books about this guy who was studying to be a doctor, like a physician, like a family physician. These are intense you know, studies, and it's a long uh, course load. And Anyway, one of these examples, he's got, he has this dream in which uh, he, it is revealed to him, he believes all of the exact questions that are going to be on his big final exam. The exact, he wakes up, he, this dream is so vivid to him, he doesn't even study anything else. 
just the, just the questions that he saw in his dream. And he gets to the school on the exam day, pulls the exam out of the envelope, opens it up, lo and behold, it's all the exact questions that were revealed to him in his dream. Thank you, God. It's easy to believe in providence when things like that happen. It's easy to believe in providence when someone special comes into your life and, oh, this is my soulmate and we were always meant to be together. Or let's say you're three hours away from your hometown and you're walking across the intersection and you haven't seen your best friend in years and they've moved to another country, but you, you actually pass crowds literally and you meet one another like, this, chance, this, this can't be chance, providence, right? But what about when things are hard? What about when uh, illness comes? What about when uh, something really difficult uh, keeps you up at night? What if something happens in your life and it's, it's this twist in the road, something you never expected and something you never wanted to have to deal with? What about times like those? Now, on the surface, today's text from John 16, it doesn't look like it's, a, it's really a teaching about providence. But Jesus says some really interesting things in here which do, in fact, teach us about providence and, in fact, let us into his mind somewhat, into his thinking, I believe, to tell us about providence and the governing, invisible, guiding hand of God, not just when things are really great and nice, but also in moments of intense personal pain. And we're going to look at the example of Jesus to see where that happens. And then we're going to ask ourselves, okay... How might this give us help or, or, or to think of our life in a different uh, and helpful way, especially when we deal with difficult things? And so we open the Bible to John chapter 16. Uh, this is a part of our journey through the Gospel of John. We're going through line by line. I'm reading from the ESV. We'll put the words up there uh, as well on the screen. Beginning at verse 25, this is a part of the farewell discourse, you recall. So Jesus is teaching his disciples called the farewell conversation. So he's teaching to the 11. Judas has already left to do his work of betrayal. And so Jesus has been teaching these things. And this is right up before his betrayal, before the crucifixion, uh, before his torture. And he's been teaching about abiding in him, spending time with him, communing with him. And as people do this, and as, as the disciples are hated, hating Jesus, sorry, as the world is hating Jesus, the disciples will receive some of that hate. So will all his followers uh, through time. And yet, in the midst of that, their sorrow will turn to joy. So on the feet of this conversation, we pick it up. I have said these things to you in figures of speech, says, or parables, right? Makes sense, and we've heard some of them. So we're talking about living waters and the bread of life and, uh, you know, the true vine and, and we being the branches, right? So he's been talking in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father, meaning his heavenly Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. Verse 29, his disciples said, ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that You know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered him, do you now believe? Now, there's kind of a, 
you can't read tone in text, but sometimes I think there's a tone there, and I think this is one of those situations where I see some tone happen to be there. Do you now believe? It's almost like a warning. Okay, you think you're confident in this? You think you're a castle of fortitude and of faithfulness? Well, um, stay tuned. Verse 32, behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home. And will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. So they will be uh, scattered. Now, <clears throat> when I was in high school, I remember talking to a friend, and uh, there's going to be this house party. And uh, this person was not supposed to have a house party because their parents were not home. And <clears throat> uh, I'm just I'm just hearing what I heard. Okay, you know, I'm just this. This is third. You know, this is third party reportage. Um, anyway, and, and, uh, and they had the party anyway, and people uh, were gathering, and the music was loud. This was in the 90s, so you can imagine Pearl Jam or Soundgarden blaring out of the, the windows. Anyway, 9 o'clock turns to 10 o'clock, turns to midnight, and everyone's there, and all of a sudden, the police show up, right? And what happens to the people? Uh, they scatter. <sighs> out the door, someone's running over the back fence into the neighbor's yard, whatever it happens to be, right? Why would they scatter at a situation like that? Because they don't want to get in trouble. They don't want to be implicated. And so when I see the word scatter, we have to think of a much larger existential scale. The, the horrible and, and dreaded bloody power of Rome is going to start to press down on Jesus and the apostles, and they are close to him. And when someone starts flinging mud at Jesus, you're going to get dirty, right? Because they're close to him. And so they scatter. And th these are the people... This must have been not only shocking for them to hear, but also a kind of hurtful. They've given up so much. They've left homes in some situations. Uh, they've left uh, jobs in some situations. They've given up, and, and they've sacrificed so much to follow him. And he says, you're going to scatter. Uh, I also think, by the way, it's, it's worthy to note, because Jesus quotes it elsewhere, that I think here Jesus is alluding to a prophecy in Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. You strike the shepherd who's Jesus, the sheep, the disciples will scatter. Right? Because Rome will bear down. And yet, his heavenly Father will be with them. Verse 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Now, you don't think that they would have the opposite of peace. Right? Uh, but what is peace? Well, Tim Keller gives a helpful definition in his commentary on Galatians. It says, biblical peace is a confidence and rest in the wisdom and control of God, a confidence and rest in the wisdom and control of God rather than your own. It replaces anxiety and worry. So when we have peace, it's, it's hard to explain it, but, but this is very close to what it is, right? This is what biblical peace is. And so it's hard to envision any scenario when, based on the fact, with the pressure of Rome bearing down, the disciples scatter how they are going to have peace. But I think he's thinking in the long term. They're going to look back on this, and it will actually give them peace in light of what they have come to know. But what Jesus says next is also connected to that peace. Verse 33 continues, In the world you will have Tribulation, tribulation, trial, troubles. But take heart, or translated, have courage. Have courage, take heart. I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> now, it's interesting, that last line. That was one of our memory verses a while ago. I have overcome the world. Notice what he says. He says, I have overcome the world. He doesn't say, I might overcome the world. He doesn't say, I perhaps will overcome the world. Or maybe, he says, I have. As if it's already accomplished. 
I have overcome the world. Now think of this in light of the context of the story where we are. He is on the verge of being betrayed into the hands of sinners. He is on the verge of his public mocking trial. He is on the verge of receiving the crown of thorns. This is on the verge of the blood coming down his face. This is on the verge of being spat upon. This is on the verge of being held up, nailed to a cross, horrific pain in a public shaming ritual. This is, all that's about to happen. And he says, I have overcome the world. So what in the world is happening in this uh, verse? Here's the thing, and this is where it comes to providence. We see the brushstrokes, but he sees the big picture, okay? We see the brushstrokes. He sees, God sees the big picture. So think of an artist painting a picture like this. We're watching this, this picture take shape, and the artist is doing this work, brushstroke, brushstroke, and we don't know what's in the mind of the creator. We haven't seen the, the, the final vision that the creator has. And so we're just kind of watching as things come together. This is like what the disciples are experiencing in this moment. They see the Romans. They hear this about Jesus. This is what they feel. They're in the Garden of Gethsemane, this, this, this. They're seeing all the brushstrokes. They don't see the big picture yet. And yet Jesus does. We see the brushstrokes. He sees the big picture. Now, what we're going to do as it relates to providence and try to understand what might be going on in the mind of Jesus, that he can say, I have overcome the world, even at this part of the story. We're going to fast forward in the story a little bit to the cross, okay? So Jesus, okay, he's, all those things have happened. He's on the cross, and he says several things to us from the cross. And one of them is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, right? Now, what is that? Now, for one, that's, that's, a very, uh, that's a cry of anguish, right? But he's actually quoting Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so on one part of this, this is, this is like him just crying out in this anguish. So Jesus on the cross, right, he's there suffering in our place. So we deserve to be there, but he is actually there. He's paying the price for what we deserve. He's giving his life for ours that we might have peace and forgiveness with God. But, to, but as Jesus pays this, this price and consequence for our sin, he, he experiences the full depths of pain and, and, and feels this separation from his heavenly Father. This is what he feels. And so he's crying out. So in one sense, that's what's going on. But also, he's quoting Psalm 22. I think something else is happening. So in high school English... Uh, you were to learn about a synecdoche, okay? So a synecdoche is when a part stands uh, in place of the whole, a part for a whole. So let me explain. So let's say that I'm hiking with a friend of mine, and we're in Malaysia, and we, we are really homesick for Canada. And we're there, and uh, we're there, and we're, we're commiserating about being, oh, I wish we were back home, this trip is too long. And uh, one says to the other, oh, Canada, our home and native land. Well, that brings to mind all of the national anthem. It's not just about that first line. It's about all of the national anthem. And all of a sudden, we start to think about all the great things that we love about being back home and home-cooked meals and seeing our friends and, you know, all those things. Or another example, let's say that I'm talking with my best friend. I'm going through a really difficult time. My friend says to me, the Lord is your shepherd. 
Now, it's not just about the Lord being my shepherd, which is true, but he's reminding me about all of Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. And so by saying that one word or that one line, it's meant to, to bring to mind all of the teaching from Psalm 23. I think when Jesus quotes Psalm 22 on the cross, he's using a synecdoche, meaning he's, it's his way of saying to people who are trying to make sense of what's going on, Hey, you want to know what's going on? Read all of Psalm 22. So we're going to highlight a few things about Psalm 22. And remember, this is in the moment of, of the height of Jesus' personal pain. Okay? Now, Psalm 22, written approximately a thousand years before Jesus, it points prophetically in many ways forward to his experience on the cross. So let's look at a few of the things in that verse. Verse 7, the sufferer is mocked. So it's explaining a, a sufferer who's going through horrific things. Verse 7, the sufferer, is mocked. Verse 11, there is no one to help the sufferer. Well, that happened to Jesus as well. He says they're going to abandon him. Verses 12 and 16, bulls and dogs encircle the sufferer. Now, there might have been dogs there, but bulls. And, this is a metaphorical way about speaking of aggressors. And who are the aggressors circling Jesus? It's the Roman officials, right? We continue, verse 16, the sufferer's hands and feet are pierced. Well, this happens to Jesus, right? Verse 18, they divided the clothes of the sufferer by lots. Okay, well, that, you know, the end of Matthew's gospel says that they do that as well, right? So all these things are occurring, but all of a sudden something happens. Right towards the end of the psalm, it totally changes and it shifts, and there's like this, this hope and victory, this, this, this wonderful crescendo. Let me highlight some of the verses for you, beginning at verse 23. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not, he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. Verse 27, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nation shall worship before you. Verse 28, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Verse 30, posterity shall serve him. It shall be told to the Lord, to the coming generation. Verse 31, they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. End of Psalm. That he has done it. So all of a sudden, what has he done? He has worked victory for his people. He has worked salvation for his people. He has worked hope for his people. And so I think when Jesus quotes Psalm 22, he's kind of letting us into his thinking a little bit and saying, you know what? You want to understand the significance of what's going on. No, no, no. This isn't defeat. This is, in fact, victory. Chapter 16, verse 33, I have overcome the world. And all of this is happening. Jesus believes in providence, the invisible, governing, guiding hand of God, working good for his people, past, present, and future, and also for his own glory. And that is a reality for him and the disciples then, and it is a reality for us as disciples now. Chance, schmance. Here's the thing, friends, if you are in Christ, you cannot lose because Christ has already won. If you are in Christ, you believe in him. God has extended this invitation through Christ through you with his grace and you've responded in faith. You actually cannot lose because Christ has already won. So the life of faith, you're going through and you're dealing with this hardship and all these difficult things, and that's a reality. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. At the same time, you are already standing at the finish line with Jesus looking back on your life. So you cannot lose. Things might happen to you that are not nice, that are not good, that are very painful. 
I'm not saying that those things are good. I'm not saying that. However, in the end, you cannot lose because God works all things for his glory. What does it say? Romans 8, 28, one of our memory verses from last year. God works the good for all things, the good of his people through those who love him. All things, not some things, all things. God works for the good of his people, for those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now, here's the thing. This isn't just big events. Sometimes we can concede, yeah, invisible hand of God moving, uh, doing big things in world wars or big, you know, things happening over the world, movements in society. No, this is also specific things in your specific life. Jesus, in chapter 10 of Matthew's gospel, talks about not even a sparrow falling to the ground outside of the will of his heavenly father. What? I uh, took the dog, Buddy the dog, who you all know and love. Uh, for a walk yesterday morning through the, through the woods behind my house. It was so gorgeous and it was sunny and all these birds were singing and this verse came to mind. Now one of the sparrow falls outside of the will of your heavenly father. And then he goes on to say that God knows how many hairs are on your head. Let's say you're standing here with the Lord of life and you're having a conversation and he says, how many, how many hairs are on your head? You're like, I don't know. He says, I'll tell you, 98,123. Matthew, you're in your 40s, so next year that's going to be 75,124. <laughs> but he knows us with this level of intimacy. Let's say you're talking with the Lord of life. He says, do you know what you were doing on October 5th, 1965? Or 75, or 2005, or 2015, or October 5th last year? Like, I'm not sure. Let me show you a picture. Here's, here's what was going on. Oh, right, I remember that day I was having a conversation with so-and-so. Um, and, so, yeah, and, and you know what? You said something hurtful to that person, but I was with that person and I went with them and I used that experience to strengthen the character of that person and to increase their faithfulness in me. Or that was the day you lost your job and you were so upset, but guess what? I used that experience as bad and as difficult as it was to make you turn a corner that you needed to turn and you didn't know it, but I did as your heavenly father. And so in Christ, you cannot lose because Christ has already won. There's a TV commercial going on uh, right now, and I don't even know what it's for, but it's this guy never not working, this guy never not working, I'm never not working, uh, which, by the way, is a horrible way to live for humans. Uh, we, should, we should not live like that. You're going to collapse, and it's disobedience to Exodus 20. But anyway, never not working, but it actually is true for God. If God ceases to, ceases to work, everything collapses instantly. Since God is never not working, we are never not hoping. Since God is never not working, we are never not overcoming. Since God is never not working, we are never not being victorious in the footsteps of Jesus. Now, John Owen is known as a, as a, um, a well-known uh, Christian uh, theologian and thinker. Now, there's a lot going on in England in the 1600s, and won't get into it all here, but... Uh, Anyway, he was, he was quite known for his works, his writings. He had a great reputation. He was influential in government and in other circles. Um, but for a variety of reasons, again, I won't get into, uh, something happened in Parliament, and many Christian uh, preachers were thrown into jail, and one of them was a person named John Bunyan. And uh, Bunyan was in jail, and he was separated from his, his wife, his kids, uh, his church in a place called Bedford. And so he was in prison, and this stretch was, was about 12 years He's in prison, and John Owen is using all of his uh, influence to try to get Bunyan out of prison. Now, Bunyan was a tinker. He was not very well educated, but Owen really respected uh, Bunyan as this powerful uh, preacher and teacher. And so Owen was trying to get Bunyan out of, out of, 
uh, prison, uh, but he couldn't do it. He, he talking to the magistrates, doing this and that, and writing this and Latin letters. He was just kept coming up against you know all these roadblocks. He could not get him out. And so after 12 years, in 1676, John Bunyan finally walks out of the prison, and he's holding a manuscript to a book under his arm called The Pilgrim's Progress. Okay, so The Pilgrim's Progress, as some of you will have known it. Uh, became incredibly, incredibly influential. It's an allegory about the Christian life. I encourage you to read it. There's even modern editions where the English is updated. But it has inspired, encouraged, and helped millions of Christians all over the world for over 340 years. It's unbelievable. It's been translated into about 200 languages. Now, what had happened if John Owen was actually successful in getting Bunyan out of prison? What if he never went in the prison in the first place? We would never have the Pilgrim's Progress. You wonder about that. Looking at this story, theologian John Piper says, it's a frowning providence. A frowning providence. I think that's interesting. Because there are so frowns being separated from your family, other things, all these things happen, and, and tears and heartache and hardship, and then Owen failing to get him out of his friend out of prison, all these things. A frowning providence, yet in and through it, God was able to work incredible things. Here's what I'd like to encourage you to do. Just think about your own hardships and just, and just take a moment to think about them specifically. <clears throat> and, you know, this will happen through the afternoon or or in the week ahead. And I know a lot of your stories. I know a lot of the difficulties and, and some really challenging things. And I just encourage you to think about them. And then in your prayer life, I would like you to think specifically of your difficulties. These are, these are broken things in your life, or things that you think are broken or challenges or, or some version of your life that you never expected or wanted but is a part of your reality. Think of that. Commend it to God in prayer, the God of providence in prayer. Ask him to work in and through it. And then what I want you to do is to trust that the God who counts the very hairs on your head, he will do it. That he will work good things for his people, for those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Jesus said, I, take heart, I have overcome the world and my people will be given peace. Praise be to God. If you are in Christ, you cannot lose because Christ has already won. Amen.